Hello, I'm Karat. And I'm Matt. Today we'll be talking with some of the veterans here at Stern. And today we're joined by... MEA 2, Kenneth Harrison, MBA 1's Nate Pfaff, Emily Kelber, and Mark Ryan. Mark is also a producer of this episode. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Hello. Well, head nods all around. Um, look, <laughs> let's kick it off. Who are you? What's your identity? What's your call sign? Hey, everybody. My name is Kenneth Harrison. I'm from New Jersey originally, great state. I was in the Army, and my first call sign was Dagger90, and it's great to be here. Hey, I'm uh, Nate Paff. I uh, came from the Army, still in the Army. I guess we'll probably get into that later. <laughs> the call signs I can say on a podcast are um, Apache 5 for a while, and then I was Headhunter 6. Hey, everyone. I'm Mark Ryan. Uh, great to be here. So like Kenneth, I grew up in New Jersey, went to the U.S. Coast Guard Academy, and was on active duty in the Coast Guard. And we don't really have call signs there. Most commonly, we just went by our last name, so everyone called me Ryan. Hi, I'm Emily Kelber. I am originally from New York in the Hudson Valley. I was in the U.S. Army, and I have no clue what my call signs were. Don't remember. <laughs> or she can't tell us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So for people that might not be familiar, what does a call sign do? It's just like an abbreviated way to reach somebody on the radio. So you know exactly who you're talking to when there's a lot of people listening at the same time. Oh, wow. And then how do you keep call signs straight? So if we're all in our, you know, if there's a hundred of us, how do you know? It's based on sort of the organizational structure of the unit. And it helps disassociate the individual from the unit you're trying to talk to. Say the commander of some unit is no longer able to command that unit, the call sign's the same. Like whoever takes that person's place is still headhunter six. Wow. Well, that sounds like a lot of stuff and things to remember. Um, <laughs> so can you talk through the structure of the military a little bit? It sounds like there are a lot of units and departments and call signs. So how does that work? What does it look like? Yeah, you want to go bottom up or top down? We can go bottom up. Like, okay. I mean, there's like a lot of different yeah, ways to organize the army. <laughs> I think like the normal structure is starts with team, possibly. Yeah. Yeah, so and then squad, yeah. platoon, company, battalion, and then up from there, it's kind of different. Mm. I was in a special forces group, so that would be you were in after battalion, you would be in a group. So I was in tenth group, and then from there. It was like the Special Forces Command, um, but the rest of the Army is a little bit different after you get to Yeah, on the regular side, it would go from a battalion where there's about 700 to 300, depending on what kind of battalion it is, up to the brigade, which is, again, three to 5,000, and then you just get into really large things. So large, no one really knows what they are. <laughs> the bottom line is... Even though we call it a whole bunch of different things, at the end of the day, it's still just like a massive organization, and most corporations are going to be broken up in a similar way. Yeah, that's interesting. Emily, I would love to double-click into your How We Met story. If you're, you're open to sharing um, your battalion love story. Yeah, so my husband and I, we were stationed together in Savannah, Georgia, and we met at work. What's the regulation? Like, do you have to keep it a secret until it's real? Do you... Are there, like... I would assume there's, like, guidelines, so just wondering what that's like. We, we're both officers, so nothing really against the rules there, but you, you can't date someone in your, it's called chain of command, so someone who has direct authority over you. We were not in the same um, chain of command, so it was fine. 
I would say like more of the regulations around dating are like enlisted versus officer and, and that kind of area gets a little tricky. Emily, you want to explain the difference between enlisted and officer? It's the thing I find most people actually don't know. Sure. So, <laughs> <laughs> so an officer, I mean, the main difference and to become an officer, you just need to have at least a bachelor's degree and, and then you go through an officer um, training or there are a few ways to commission as an officer. So one would be through an academy um, in the Army. It's West Point. And that's where I commissioned from. There's also, it's called ROTC, where you're going to a normal college. My, my husband also did ROTC. Kenneth over there just <laughs> saying, yeah, ROTC. Um, and maybe, I don't know, Kenneth, you can talk more about ROTC. And I think, did Nate, you? I went to OCS, OCS which is okay. the the poor man's way to get into the, <laughs> into the Army, because it only takes 12 weeks, and ROTC and the Academy are four years. I hear it's a tough 12 weeks. It wasn't that bad, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, I thought observing West Point, not going there, but teaching there for a little bit, I, 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 that looks way worse. Yeah. What does what does OCS stand for? Oh, Officer Candidate School. And yeah, we will use acronyms I've liberally. Noticed. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah I, I've noticed. My so, boyfriend went to West Point, so, oh, I just, yeah. so I'm just like, what is this? Help. So please call us out. <laughs> um, Kenneth, did you want to talk about your ROTC experience at Rutgers? Yes, yes. Really leaning into the Jersey roots here. Uh -huh. um, no, ROTC is pretty great. I think it's the best way to commission. Um, maybe not the most prestigious, but definitely the, the most enjoyable. Uh, you're essentially just a normal student at a college or university, and you do PT, so you do physical training every morning, and you do five to six hours of training on Friday. And other than that, you're just a normal college student. So it's pretty good. Uh, definitely keeps you a little bit more structured while at school, which is very helpful, at least for me. Uh, and then at the end, you commission with everybody else. And you kind of go on the same path once you commission. So basically, you're saying you were super ripped, and at the end, you got to follow your career path, dream. I definitely did not say that, but I'm okay <laughs> with that interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like we have a few different branches and parts of the military. So can you guys talk about maybe some of the competitiveness that exists? Army versus Navy is something I've heard about. Sports, units. How does that work? Yeah, I just like to say nobody competes with the Coast Guard because <laughs> they're not worth competing with, really. Oh, well, the, the Coast Guard Academy does have our big uh, Coast Guard Academy versus Merchant Marine Academy football game every year. That's definitely a thriller to watch. Where is it? We alternate back and forth. So... Uh, the Coast Guard Academy is in New London, Connecticut, and then Merchant Marine Academy is in Kings Point, New York. So it's actually right over the Throg's Neck Bridge for those of you from the area. Um, so we alternate back and forth on location. We, we can't really afford nor fill uh, MetLife Stadium <laughs> for a game. I was there. It's an interesting uh, game to observe. I've been to NFL games at MetLife and watching Army-Navy. I noticed some norms that are maybe more specific to the military. One thing I noticed was there was a lot of non-denominational prayer going on. Um, are there any other traditions that you guys think are kind of ingrained and you see like pretty normal that might stand out to someone who wasn't a part of the military? I think one thing that we did every morning that I'm not 100% sure it ever became normal for me is when the flag would go up at 630, we would all stand and sing our division song every single morning for we, we were in forever. the same division 
Do you still know it? Can you sing it? I cannot, actually. <laughs> I remember the first few words are steadfast and I'll loyal. get a... Yeah. Um, can I YouTube it? This I can is, bring it up. I can still go. sing it. Um, this is going to be extremely embarrassing. Um, yeah. Steadfast and loyal. We're fit to fight the nation's finest soldiers. Something liberty's light. And it goes on. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that part will not it be It sounds better out. when there's a thousand people singing it at the same time. Yeah, and that's not nearly as bad as the 2nd Cavalry Regiment one. You can Google it if you're really interested. I'm not going to sing that one. So my question is, uh, what, what drove you initially to pursue a military career? So for me, pretty long family history of service in the military. So it was always something that was on my mind that I knew I wanted to do when I was essentially choosing which service. You know, at the time, I was an EMT uh, in high school and really enjoyed helping other people. Um, so I ended up choosing the Coast Guard mostly because I thought it would be something where we actually do the mission every day. We're not you know, training for something that we hope doesn't happen. Also, too, just looking at options in terms of commissioning. I knew I wanted to be an officer. And uh, I got into the Coast Guard Academy, did not get an appointment to the others. So that made my decision pretty simple. I, I had the option to do ROTC. Um, for the Navy and really just decided on the Coast Guard based on the mission. For me, uh, my dad was in the NYPD. And so when 9-11, uh, he was in the city. And it was, I think I was in second grade. Um, but I, I just remember it being extremely scary. We didn't know if he was okay. He ended up being okay, but he, um, a lot of his, he lost a lot of his friends. And just his service and, and all uh, experiencing the aftermath of 9-11 really inspired my own. Um, and I grew up around West Point, and so it was kind of natural for me to join the Army. So mine is also tied to 9-11. Um, however, I was a junior in college um, when 9-11 happened, so that dates me a bit. But yeah, so I, I, my, my dad was in the Air Force, but I didn't want to touch the military with a 10-foot pole when I was 18 years old, so I just went to college. Um, 9-11 happened, that changed things for a little bit. I was still really reluctant to do the military, and it was really only until I failed with, like, all the three-letter agencies, and then the Navy, and then the Air Force wouldn't take me because my eyes suck, that I ended up in the Army. But I've been very happy that I did. It put me into situations that I would never have chosen for myself that have been really good for me. I come from a pretty long track record of service as well, but in the... Uh British military, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> my people. Uh, so it's a little, a little bit different there, uh, and a little bit on the in the American as well. Um, my grandfather was in the military, but yeah, my dad, his dad, and his dad were all in the British military. Um, nobody I know in my family has ever done more than the minimum requirement, and I'm happy to keep that trend going. Uh, no, I think what originally drove me—it's kind of funny—is I wanted to be an Air Force fighter pilot when I was like three years old, I watched the movie The Right Stuff. It's like, that's exactly what I want to do with my life. It's all I ever want to do. And I'm colorblind. So that didn't happen. No chance. Couldn't even apply. I was kind of already trending that direction. So I was like, you know what? I still want to serve in some capacity. And the Army uh, actually had a really great pitch when I was looking at a bunch of places. And I was like, that's 100% where I want to go. And that's where I ended up. So you all kind of touched on my next question, which is how did you choose between the next between the various branches. So let me ask, you know, I think most of you said you have family history of service. 
were any of your family members or I guess spouses, significant others concerned about your choice in military? Were they excited for you? How did that go down? Everyone was pretty supportive. I think my parents were pretty aggressive about me going to college. And my dad wanted me to become an officer. He wasn't, nobody else in our family ever had been. I think that's something he wanted. I think they were more concerned, like, if you're going to go down this route, please make sure you still get uh, a college degree. Yeah, and for me, it, my parents knew who I was and knew the different missions of the branches and I think helped steer me towards the Coast Guard. They were a little apprehensive about the Army, if that was going to be my choice, to be totally honest, with you know three other Army vets here. Again, I think that was just out of the environment that was going on at the time. And you know, I was graduating high school in 2008. So again, a pretty intense time over in the Middle East. And um, the Coast Guard fit my personality better. But at the end of the day, I do think if I had chosen West Point or Army ROTC, they, they would have been supportive. And I was the first person in my family to join the military. So they didn't really know much about it. And generally were just supportive of what I, whatever I wanted to do. So I, I think it's been great that you guys are sharing your inspirations for joining there. As Matt said, there's a common thread of service, but also seeing 9-11 and wanting to stand up for our country. And I think I had particular notions about the military as someone who grew up as Muslim in Texas. When 9-11 happened, all the kids in the neighborhood were told they weren't allowed to be friends with me. And so that really impacts you in a different way. And so I think Stern has been really beneficial in breaking some of those notions that I had. And frankly, it was wrong of me to have certain stereotypes. So what are some of the notions you think your peers may have about you as veterans or potentially going back into the military? What do you think could be true and maybe what's not? So I think one of the biggest misconceptions is that we only identify as veterans. A lot of us you know, have hobbies outside of the military. <laughs> uh, we have, you know, interests and families and, and things that we identify as outside of veterans. Like I, even just coming to business school, we all come for different reasons. And it's not just because we're veterans. Yeah, I, one, totally agree with that. <laughs> and then second, uh, one I've seen, so I'm still in, but I've had many friends uh, and subordinates at this point that have gotten out, gone to the business world, and I'm still in contact with them. And I think the big thing that they've sort of been surprised about is th there's this perception that the the military and maybe especially the Army and the Marine Corps, like you're an order following automaton is like how people view you. My subordinates and my friends who, who got out after four or five years and went into business, they without question have said that they had more authority and freedom to make decisions within the military on like how things would be done and what direction to take their whatever they were doing with their job than they found in the business world, um, which I thought was I mean, really surprising for my own thing. I think maybe slightly less so, but I think one thing just to think about when we talk about veterans as a group is that uh, veterans is an extraordinarily diverse group of people in every sense of that word. So it's difficult in my opinion, to just to say blanket statements about it in general. I think it's a little self-selecting here at business school, uh, but definitely in general, it's really hard to even make any sort of sweeping blanket statements. So since Matt and I are so inspired to potentially join the military after business school. <laughs> Good job, guys. Well yeah, done. We're well not done. going into consulting anymore. Um, what are the physical requirements? Like, what are tryouts like, you know? 
I don't know what they are now, but at the time you had to do two minutes of push-ups, two minutes of sit-ups, and a two-mile run. And depending on how old you were and uh, what gender you were, uh, it changed what those specific requirements were. And then additionally, I think for certain jobs, there were other things you just had to be able to do. I know for me, I was a field artillery officer, and every soldier in our battery had to be able to pick up field artillery rounds, which are pretty heavy. And, and that's specifically for the Army. I know a lot of other branches of service have different requirements, like Marines are a little bit more difficult. I don't know if Mark, you can speak to the Coast Guard. You guys have to swim. <laughs> So, <laughs> I guess technically no. I mean, we all do swim as part of, like, our boot camp experience. We had to jump off the high dive and then swim, like, 100 yards. Like, it's not really that difficult. And also, another common misconception is not every coastie is jumping in the water to save people. The rescue swimmers definitely go through a much, much more rigorous physical evaluation. Um, but despite that, we, you know, we do still have requirements. Um maybe a little less stringent than some of the other branches, but, you know, we still have to look good in uniform. Yeah, well, I heard it was 35 push-ups if you were a female to be in the Army, like 90-degree angles, and, like, my arms are long and lanky, and I don't know, you know, 35 in two minutes? My arms are pretty long and lanky, too. You have to, like, have a trick of going further out with your arms. Mm. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. The push-up requirement definitely discriminates against tall people. Just saying. <laughs> I, I have a question. So for those of us who maybe aren't doing so well with recruiting and we're looking for alternatives. What is the age cutoff for joining the military? It's changed quite a bit. <laughs> um, Talk to your recruiter. Yeah, <laughs> go ask a recruiter. Um, I think it's somewhere around 30, 32 at this point. I, it has changed. I mean, when I was joining the Army in 2006 and seven. It was much higher. I went to officer candidate school with a 41-year-old um, prior service guy. Wow. But that is not the norm now. Yeah, I know it also kind of depends on their staffing needs. For example, when I was in the Coast Guard in 2012, there was like a three-month wait for boot camp. Like it was very competitive to actually enlist. It wasn't exactly like walk into your recruiter and sign the dotted line you're in. So there's that, too. And I think these days it's a little bit easier. But again, it, it really depends on how many people they need that day. I doubt it's ever been super hard to join the Army. <laughs> <laughs> Just to add one more thing, going back to the officer versus enlisted, the Coast Guard, and I don't know if this is true for the other branches, but we have a lot of really talented and highly educated enlisted people. For example, one of the electricians on in my division on the ship, he had a master's in hospitality and came from a whole different career working in the hotel industry. And he ended up joining the Coast Guard to get health care for his family. So there's also a whole myriad of reasons why people join. Piggybacking off of that, I've heard that there are not just U.S. citizens that are a part of the military. There are a diversity of people. So what kind of people did you work with or see on a daily basis? I know there's this perception of white men, no offense uh, <laughs> to you, <laughs> but just wondering what that's actually like, like jokes aside. I'll start here because I, I commanded a, a headquarters infantry company, which won't mean anything to most people. It's a large organization, about 200 people in it, diverse range of tasks that it has to accomplish. 
I had people from eight or ten different countries. I can't remember exactly. How, like a third of my medics were from a couple of different African countries. I had um, a Ukrainian citizen. Um, I had several Mexican citizens. You know, going back to what we said earlier, like it's the most diverse organization I've ever been a part of in my life. And it's one of the most diverse organizations I've ever seen when you, when you talk both sort of racially, socioeconomically, the types of people you get, all kinds join the army, <laughs> good and bad, I guess, <laughs> in that way. Um, but it's, I think for the, for the MBA audience, right, it's a group of people you're not going to meet or have to work with ever in your life unless you do that sort of military thing for people with high-level college educations. So, Mark, you said earlier, and, and this was a good point, like a big misconception is you, you don't just identify as being a veteran. And I think it's important, but being a veteran is certainly a different experience from something a lot of your stern peers have. You know, it's something that not a lot of us can relate directly to. So for those of us who don't have that military experience, how can your stern peers be a good ally to you and your fellow veterans? I think stern is really supportive of veterans already. You know, for example, a lot of us are here on a scholarship, generosity of uh, the Fertitta brothers. I know there's been a previous episode interviewing them, so check that out. And we have the club here, the Military Veterans Club. But just like any other affinity group, becoming an ally member of, of that club is helpful. You kind of get some perspective that maybe you wouldn't otherwise. And I think that's a big part of coming to business school is to learn from other people and, and their very diverse backgrounds. Stern does a great job with that, with the whole EQ plus IQ thing. I think we do tend to be a more diverse student body than maybe some of the other schools. So, you know, overall, I think it's just like any other affinity group, get to know them, um, you know, ask them about their experience and be open to listen. Was being a veteran a factor in choosing Stern over any other business schools? Yes, 100%. That is a huge part of why I came to Stern was the Fertitta program and the Fertitta scholarship. And Talking to other veterans at other schools has completely solidified my decision to me. Our MVC is incredibly close and extremely supportive through recruiting, through classes. And I think that's a direct result of the Fertitta program. And I'll expand on the program as well. So not only is it a scholarship, but all the veterans that are in the program start in the summer. So we take accounting and statistics early. We get to know each other. We get some of the academics out of the way. We tending to be older students, get back into that academic mindset a little bit better. And then to answer the Stern question, I ended up applying only to Stern. So I applied round one, found out I got the scholarship in late December, and ended up not even finishing my other application. So very easy choice for me. So since it's me, and if you know me, I ask difficult questions, but <laughs> I love to get to know people on a deeper level, um, though I do care about your hobbies. We can talk about those soon. I don't have any hobbies. I recently realized this. I was like, what do I do in my free time now that I'm not recruiting? It's like, drink, eat. Are those hobbies? No one knows. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They count. Uh, yeah. Just lay around. Um, so I'd love to kind of touch on, and please share what you're comfortable with, what was the most difficult part of your time in service? And if you're comfortable touching on deployments? Probably the most difficult experience I had uh, was being told that I'm going on a second deployment. I had been back from Afghanistan for about 15 months then. 
and just the manner in which I was told, I actually went with my girlfriend at the time, she is now my wife, to go visit basically our office on the last day before Christmas block leave. We were going to fly home. All I had to do that day was get some measurements for about 25 soldiers who were going to be deploying as a very small attachment. I got all the measurements done. Basically, was told, you're good to leave. I said goodbye. Got in the car. Realized I had forgotten something. On brand. On brand. (laughs) Went back into the office. Who knows what? I don't even know what it was now. Probably my cover somehow. And my hat. And I saw my commander, and he was like, hey, Ken, can you come here for a second? Hey, change of mission. We're all going to be going. And also, two days after we get back from the block leave, we're going to be going to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, for three and a half months to train to be ready to go. So basically, all of this year, expect to not be home. That was tough for me because I did not have enough time to personally process it before I got into the car and had to explain to my girlfriend who had already done one, hey, by the way, this is happening again. And I just didn't say anything at the time. I said, everything is good. We're leaving. But that was tough. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of unannounced trips to Oklahoma either. (laughs) (laughs) Oklahoma was the good part. (laughs) Yeah, I would say my deployments were definitely the most challenging, but also the most rewarding parts of my military career. Being a 23-year-old lieutenant leading about 100 soldiers in Iraq was definitely a challenge. I mean, it was like my first time even on my own, you know, outside of college. So just learning how I was as a leader and, and how I could make sure everyone came back safe was was a challenge, but also definitely something that I look at in my life as um, one of my greatest achievements. And so it was definitely a, a rewarding experience. For me, my first deployment was interesting, I guess i put it that way, but that I thought that was a challenge I was prepared for. Um, I was trained pretty well. I led a scout platoon. Like, it was all the stuff that, like, the Army had prepared me to do. What I was not well prepared for was coming home. I had a wife. I had a then two-year-old, three-year-old daughter. Bad at math. Um, You know, you can ask my wife this thing, too. Like, the worst year of our marriage was that year after I got back. I didn't transition well, and I hadn't done a good job of staying in touch while I was deployed. And, like reintegrating into being like a husband and a father and not a platoon leader in a very remote portion of eastern Afghanistan like those are very different tasks and it took me a long time to like make that transition when I deployed for the second time like when it was an easier deployment but like I like that went much easier and like we're okay now (laughs) to expand off of Nate's story the coast guard's slightly different where we don't deploy for years at a time um our cadence is more months the kind of ship i was on um, we would deploy more frequently for like two or three months at a time sometimes four then come home for a couple months so while we weren't gone for a year at a time which definitely has its own challenges like nate said i think the cadence makes it tough for us right we would come home and then there'd still be work to do on the ship during those two months that you're home. It's not like everyone just goes home for two months. And then before you know it, it's time to go back out again. And I remember my apartment at the time only took checks. 
they didn't have an electronic payment system yet. <laughs> so it was like, all right, I'm going to drop off the next four months of checks for you, and I hope my apartment is not vacated when I get back. I'm so, not a serial killer. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Um, there's all these little challenges that people don't realize, like, how do I jumpstart my car when I get back because it's been sitting in a parking lot for three months. So a lot of just, like, funny little challenges, even, like, walking through the grocery store of, like, oh, I have to shop for myself again. It's just, like, the little things that you don't realize until you actually go and come back. Yeah, when I got back the first time, it's funny you mentioned the car. My roommates were supposed to run my car every month. They completely failed me. And I got back, and the car just would not start. And I spent so much time trying to figure out why it wouldn't start until we figured out that at some point some small animal had gone in there and chewed through the ignition. So that was really exciting. That was a really fun first day back. I was like, we're back. Let's go get some food and I'll drive the car. Also, other thing, driving for the first time after not driving or driving at like a top speed of 15 miles an hour around a base is very exciting. So things the military did not prepare you for. (laughs) (laughs) I'll add one more thing. We had Armed Forces Network um, while we were underway. So for the listeners, that's uh, government-sponsored television where they would pump in some pretty decent stuff, but they always have these weird PSAs as commercials. <laughs> and Wear your seatbelt. Yeah, like wear your seatbelt, uh, don't do drugs. It's uh, You really have to experience it. And <laughs> Well, it's the same, like, four of them right. as well. <laughs> exactly. It's like the same four on repeat. And there's no regular commercials. So, like, coming home and watching ads again is, is a little jarring um, and not having Armed Forces Network to entertain you. I like the really intense PSA about bolting down your furniture so your kids don't tip it over. What? That yes, was a really exciting I remember one. that one. Saw right. that about 3,000 times. The time zones also really throw you off. So, for example, when we were underway in the Pacific, this was again 2012 during the London Olympics, and watching Armed Forces Network, you just watch what's on. So we were literally halfway around the world from when the Olympics were going on, but they would still show it. But it would be those really obscure sports like speed walking. <laughs> so we got to watch the speed walking gold medal. I've got another good TV anecdote. So we're, on my first appointment where we, were, we didn't have AFN, like we couldn't get the dish for that. But they, the squadron bought us like this Indian satellite TV. So we, Jadu? Yeah. So we watched, <laughs> I watched a lot of cricket and a lot of like... Um, makeshift versions of like US TV shows made by <laughs> Indian television companies that were like half English, half Hindi, and we'd sort of figure out what was going on. It was a good time. Did you learn Hindi from that experience? A little Absolutely bit? not, but <laughs> it was close enough to like um, some of the languages my translator spoke that they could usually like interpret for us a little bit. Well, definitely makes you appreciate Netflix and Hulu and maybe the internet and advertisements, it turns out. You know, I feel the urge, but I won't, but I feel the urge to thank you for your service and being open and vulnerable and sharing all of this. Um, You know, I know, you know, if you're boarding a plane or using maybe your military ID to get a free check bag, you know, people say thank you for your service. How does that make you feel? I've heard it makes people uncomfortable. I think it used to make me uncomfortable because I did not know what to say back. But now I have come up with something to say back and I just accept it in the good faith that I'm sure it's intended to. I think it's 
way too easy to be extraordinarily cynical about it. And I'm sure sometimes that's necessary. But when it's meant in good faith, accept it in good faith. And I just say thank you for your support. Uh, and I think that's totally fine. And I think people mean it really in a positive way. So I, I let Karat ask the tough question about, you know, the difficult part of your service. I want to ask the nicer one, which is, yeah. was there a favorite part of your service? Something, was there a memory or a moment when you're like, this makes it all worth it. This is why I'm here. I'm glad I'm here. This is the right decision. Yeah, I have one. We were doing a training event in Louisiana. It was, I don't know, I think it's like 30 days and then 12 days are the actual training. We were the first people to go and start the training event and the entire brigade of, I think, 5,000 people were waiting for us. And they were like, you guys need to go ahead, get there, get set up, and then everyone else is going to start. We made our first turn, made it about 300 yards, and immediately got just completely stuck in the mud. It was pouring rain. We couldn't get anywhere. And we spent the next 36 hours digging ourselves out of the mud. And obviously that was terrible. However, the part that I remember and just reaching a point, and it was so funny, we had been... It's hard to explain the chaos of what it looked like at this point, where I had one person in a Humvee, we could set it so they could go down a hill and then up a hill. And we're all rooting and chanting their name <laughs> for them to come down and they're going to make it up this hill. And they just went right into the mud, just got way more stuck, and everybody just started cracking up. And it was probably the funniest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. And at that point, when you're all exhausted, it just made it one of the funniest things. And people from that platoon I was in are still some of my best friends now. And I think just going through all those things and laughing about it at the end is just so fantastic. You never get to anywhere else. Yeah, and I think being a leader in the military, you get to see people that you are in charge of or uh, leading do some pretty extraordinary things. And, and that's what really made it impactful for me. I had soldiers who then went on to college and became officers or became nurses. And it was really it was really great seeing them succeed and and having a little piece or helping a little bit along the way. I'll say, I think a lot of the positive memories come afterwards, right? Like Kenneth was saying, you embrace the suck a lot. And it's only after do you kind of appreciate the things that you did enjoy. Like, you know, being underway on a ship for four months kind of sucks. But looking back, like the sunsets and the sunrises you see on the water are next to none. I have, you know, one very distinct memory of going out. We were up in Alaska, pretty far north uh, above the Arctic Circle, and going out on the flight deck at night and seeing the northern lights, seeing that in person is just totally different than any video or picture can do justice. So getting experiences like that, even though I may not have appreciated it fully while I was there, are definitely some of the great things that I was able to experience that I wouldn't have been able to otherwise. I taught at West Point for three years and sort of mentoring young people as they sort of make this journey into the Army. Um, like I, I'm still doing that as we speak with cadets that I met my first year teaching that are going to graduate this year and become officers in the spring and that's it's so incredibly rewarding. So if, uh, if TikToks are any measure of truth here. I understand there's a lot of dancing to Taylor Swift involved in the military. Did anyone participate in synchronized dancing routines? Never that. I do. Uh, I was lucky enough when I was a cadet 
to go to Vietnam for a month. And I was shocked and I was teaching English to about 45 officers from Vietnam. And they all were really obsessed with Taylor Swift and not all of ABBA, but specifically the song Dancing Queen. That was a really eye-opening experience for me. It was very fun. Uh, on my first appointment, uh, my my guys were actually way more into Miley Cyrus's um, party in the USA. I did not participate, but there were some synchronized videos to that one. So I, I'm curious now that you're here in business school at Stern, what has been your your favorite part of being here in Stern? I like not working. <laughs> I I spent three years after the Coast Guard working in uh, tech consulting and. While that really helped me kind of define what I wanted to do afterwards, it's still a job and coming to school is definitely a nice break. I mean, we, we do work hard. There's a lot of, you know, pulling you in different directions, especially, you know, Nate and I are both parents and we've got other obligations at home. But at the end of the day, like I don't have class on Mondays and Fridays, so it's really nice to have a break from, I guess, the monotony of work. I think for me, uh, the best part has been feeling like I'm going in the correct direction again. I think since high school, I knew I was going to be in the military. In college, I was trying to get to commission. When I was in the Army, I knew what I was going to do, but I didn't really think about what I was going to do after. And the last year, uh, it was definitely a little confusing for me. Uh, it was difficult for me to really try to come up with what I planned to do when I left. Um, and now that I'm at business school, I feel like I'm actually moving in a, in a good direction again, which has been pretty fantastic for me. What's your favorite part of Stern, Matt? My favorite part of Stern? Uh, Stern honestly, Chats. Stern, Stern Chats, Chats, obviously. Obviously. No, I would say as, as sappy as it sounds is getting to meet and hang out with cool people like you guys. Um, I, it's a, a very nice diversity of folks that we have in our, our Stern class, I think. Um, so it's, it's been a pleasure getting to meet and hang out with all of you, especially this year when we can actually be in person, not everything over Zoom. I actually did have to, one of my first in-person classes was with Ken, so that was good. Um, but otherwise, it was kind of sad last year <laughs> having to meet everyone over virtual, you know, chat rooms. So it's been nice to see all your, I was to say smiling faces, but I can't see any smiles <laughs> with the masks on here. We're almost there. <laughs> Karat, how about you? What's been your favorite part of Stern? My favorite part of Stern is the change. And so I know change it, dream it, et cetera, are part of our slogan. But the change that I've seen personally in meeting a diverse range of people is very unique to Stern in the type of people they bring in. I think that the institution itself is very open to change and promoting change. They take student feedback very seriously and actively to make it a safer space and better school for everyone. And then aligned with what the others are saying, you know, professionally, I'm changing into, I'm transforming, I'm an anamorph, uh, into a consultant. And so that's been my favorite part of Stern. I love the anamorph reference there, by the way. That, that actually leads me to my next question, which is from your time in the service, now being here in business school, what have been the skills that you honed in your military career that you found most useful here in business school and that you think might help you in your professional career afterwards, wherever you end up going? I think it, it goes back to the diverse background of the, the military and like how many different people that you work with. And I think that's been really beneficial. So I think one of the first things I noticed right off the bat was time management. Over the summer, we had Professor Yo for accounting. And I remember one of the first few classes, 
everyone was there at like 8.55 and we start class at 9. And he made a comment about how this never happens. And <laughs> he had to actually wait five minutes before the class recording would start. So we all just sat there and talked to him about various <laughs> things and waited to start class. And, um, you know, not to knock our other classmates, but once the regular semester started, there's people walking in class like 20 minutes late with coffee in their hand and uh, like nothing's wrong. <laughs> Again, not to bash anyone, but uh, it's just funny how all the vets are there, you know, early. And um, I think that's just a testament to the time management skills that we develop in the military. Would you say if you're not early, you're late? Uh, yeah. So the Coast Guard, we had a saying maybe in the Army too, if you're early, you're on time. If you're on time, you're late. And if you're late, people die. So that was uh, something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've, I've heard the first part of that phrase. I haven't heard yeah. that, that last part. Yeah, maybe the last part, the, the Coast Guard adds on a little bit. I think the best skill, I don't even know if it's a skill that I've taken from the military, is to just stay calm. I think that's something I really had trouble learning to do while I was in the Army. I'm sure a couple of my old NCOs could uh, attest to that uh, enthusiastically. Um, but I think now it's something that I've really worked on and being essentially very level-headed because everything that we're doing is very surmountable. And I definitely took that uh, lesson into my summer as well, and I think it showed. Yeah, to add on to that too, I think it does put the exams and stuff into perspective. Like, okay, at business school, grades don't matter. I think it's a little bit easier for us to actually embrace that a little bit better than... Um, people who aren't veterans, because we have done jobs where there is a little bit more at risk rather than, okay, am I going to get a B minus in my class? Being able to put into perspective the actual impact of the, the classwork that's due and maybe not stressing about, out, about it as much as others is actually, I think, a good skill. So for our last question, I wanted to end on something a little more lighthearted here. Um, I know in the military, you often have to eat something called MREs. So I'm hoping, can you help our audience understand what those are and what was your least favorite flavor or type of MRE that you had to eat? Okay, so an MRE is a meal ready to eat. It's essentially a bag full of food uh, and various snacks, uh, such as pork, sausage, and gravy, various beef flavors. Um, Sometimes you'll get Skittles if you're really lucky, uh, weird cheese spreads, peanut butter spreads. And you usually eat that when you're training or when you're in a deployed environment where it's difficult to get you normal uh, rations. And the absolute worst flavor is kind of controversial take on my part, but pork, sausage, and gravy. I cannot get to the end of one of those. I think it's just absolutely vile. see a lot of furrowed brows on that one, Ken. <laughs> yeah. What if I'm gluten-free? They have vegetarian, which leads into mine. The worst flavor of all time is the veggie omelet. Traditional choice. So if you can consider, like, the worst powdered eggs you can think of and then put them in a sealed bag for months on end and then eat them cold, that's the veggie omelet making me hungry over here. Yeah. Do you warm them up or like, sorry, like so many questions. You just open this bag of powder eggs so and you put it in your mouth? There is a heating mechanism. I know um, time for that. Yeah, it's a lot to explain. But <laughs> at least in like basic training, we weren't allowed to use the heaters because it was, I don't know, too nice. 
<laughs> I do remember the veggie omelet, omelet being pretty terrible. I also recall the vegetarian ones had the Skittles, right? Was Is that accurate? Yeah, I think there's like a minimum calorie count. Like you need to be able to thrive off of like one or two of these in a day. So I think the vegetarian ones make up for the calorie deficiency with like Great sugar. snacks. The best, yeah. the best, the best yeah. snacks. So I would always go for those ones because I knew I was bound to get some good snacks, maybe Skittles, <laughs> M&Ms, something like that. So once again, being the lone coaster here, we didn't have MRAs, but on the ship we'd have something called mid-rats or midnight rations. And those were for the watch team that was going on duty over the middle of the night. Obviously, we have to have someone driving the ship 24-7. Those would traditionally be pretty awful, but on this one deployment, we had one of our cooks who was very talented, and he was on the midnight or the mid rats rotation, and he would make amazing food. And it's again just the watch team, so it's a pretty small group of people. So he would actually be able to make some really good food. But then it got to the point where people were skipping dinner and waking up at like eleven thirty at night to come get some mid rats because they were so good. So he got switched out, and then one of the other um, cooks who was not as talented came on and uh, that person would just make some steamed vegetables with no seasoning and that was your meal for the night so could be a positive experience but most likely not a great one well thank you all so much for being here with us i think we all learned a lot appreciate your time and uh thank you for your service Mm -hmm.